In a dramatic and, dare I say, ridiculously embarrassing U-turn, the BBC are taking Gary Lineker off air over a tweet. And now even David Attenborough shows are under threat. Is no one safe from the tyranny of cancel culture at the BBC? Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'll be joined in just a moment by Aaron Bastani. We're also, as well as the show at the BBC, talking about Nord Stream. There's some new theories about what caused um, that explosion and some, some key moments from last night's question time that we think you'll find interesting. First story. The BBC have made themselves a joke after a row prompted by a tweet from Gary Lineker. Now, if you've been living under a, a rock over the past few days, this was Lineker's tweet, the tweet that created a BBC crisis, one of our biggest public institutions. Uh, he said this, There is no influx. We take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. And I'm out of order, question marks. It's a reply to someone else. Now, that was posted on Tuesday. It led to angry front pages um, on the Daily Mail and the Telegraph on Wednesday morning, of course. And then by Wednesday night, it was the number one story on the BBC News at six and the BBC News at 10. So obviously, you know, the government were planning to, to break the, the convention on refugees, which has been in place since the 1950s. And the BBC thought the most important thing um, to talk about would be Gary Lineker's tweet. Um, by Thursday, everyone else had got involved. Gary Lineker was being doorstepped by the entire UK press. This was a scene from Sky News. Yes. Morning, Gary. Yes, I would like Yes. A very good morning to you. Morning, Thank morning. You. Do you regret the tweet, Gary? Gary. Do you regret the tweet, Gary? Gary. Hi. Hi there. Have Hello. you heard from the BBC, Gary? I'm always talking to the BBC. What has the Director General said anything to you? Um, yeah. What's he said? He said, well, we have a chat, we chat often. Yes. Anything about the tweet, Gary? Do you, Sorry, do you regret that? sending the tweet at all? No. Do you stand by what Bye. you said? Sorry? Do you stand by what you said in your tweet? Cool. Bye. Thank you. Oh. An example of some really hard-hitting journalism there. Um, soon after that footage was taken, The Sun newspaper spoke to a source at the BBC who said Lineker wouldn't face disciplinary action. So Noah Hoffman, a journalist at The Sun, tweeted this. A BBC source said, we have spoken to Gary and he won't face any disciplinary action. From our perspective, the situation has been resolved now and we want him to get back to what he's best at, which is being a brilliant sports presenter. And this came with news that he would be hosting this Saturday's match of the day. Um, she followed up the tweet with this, though, potentially prophetic. Tory MPs are furious at the decision with some planning to fight it. Just 24 hours later, after that report in the sun, it appears those angry Tories have got their way. The top story on the BBC website is once again about Gary Lineker announcing he is to step back from presenting Match of the Day. And this is the full statement from the organisation. The BBC has been in extensive discussions with Gary and his team in recent days. We have said we consider his recent social media activity to be a breach of our guidelines. The BBC has decided that he will step back from presenting Match of the Day until we've got an agreed and clear position on his use of social media. When it comes to leading our football and sports coverage, Gary is second to none. We have never said that Gary should be an opinion-free zone or that he can't have a view on issues that matter to him. But we have said that he should keep well away from taking sides on party political issues 
or political controversies. Now, we'll be coming back to that sentence when we show you what some other people have said um, who happen to work for the BBC. Um, I'm joined now by Aaron Bastani. Um, what can I say? What a mess this is. Well, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it, but what you said just there with regards to the statement about party political interventions by BBC journalists, he hasn't done that. He has criticised a piece of government policy. He's not endorsing one party over another. And it's important to say there are guidelines on this. They only apply to BBC employees, i.e. members of staff, or to people that work in current affairs, politics, journalism. For the corporation. Of course, Gary Lineker falls into neither category, which is probably why he viewed himself as being pretty watertight on this issue. Um, but they've still taken umbrage with him, irrespective of that. So even though this is almost certainly not a, a contractual breach by Gary Lineker, he's still having to quote unquote step back from the BBC. Now, the strategy and the explanation for that, if they do axe him, will be something like he brought the BBC into disrepute. I don't think anybody believes that when you see other instances of what other people have said. Let's get on to some of those other instances. First, um, we've got a good tweet for you. Ian Wright, um, he co-hosts Match of the Day with Lineker. He's tweeted this. Everybody knows what Match of the Day means to me, but I've told the BBC I won't be doing it tomorrow. Solidarity. I'll be getting Aaron's opinion on that because I know less uh, about who might fill in for these guys on Match of the Day. First, though, let's look at some people whose historic tweets, or recent tweets, actually, didn't cause meltdowns at the BBC. This is Lord Sugar, Alan Sugar, who hosts the BBC's Apprentice. So again, one of the most high profile um, faces of the BBC. Hello, Mick Lynch. Are you happy with yourself bringing the country and ordinary people down on their knees over Christmas? You don't fool me waiting for the employers to come to table. You love the publicity. Your members would like to earn what you get. Why won't you waive your salary? We've also got one from Emily Maitlis, who is actually a political reporter, or you know, obviously was at Newsnight at the time, now at Global. In 2017, she tweeted, wonder if Labour could try and stage coup against Corbyn. Is there time for that? Hashtag general election 2017. And then another from Alan Sugar. He tweeted in 2017. If you admire or trust me, a East End boy done good by honest graft. For the good of the UK, I sincerely advise not to vote for Corbyn. So as we saw in that statement from the BBC, they were very specific. You're allowed to have opinions. We don't mind our hosts having opinions. And, you know, these are similar jobs, right? Because Gary Lineker, freelance, uh, a freelancer who hosts and, and fronts up a, a, a big BBC show, Alan Sugar, similar, right? Both of these people have, well, I mean, to me, Alan Sugar seems much more partisan. <laughs> he's, he's literally saying, don't vote for Corbyn, who's rubbish, vote for the other party. And then he's getting involved in strikes, which is a contentious issue by any account, right? They're saying there's something uniquely contentious about immigration and criticizing the Tories, which separates Gary Lineker from Alan, Alan Sugar. Aaron, how are they going to possibly square this kind of thing? Well, the Alan Sugar tweet, Michael, he's made that on uh, in June 2017. I, I, I believe that was the day of the general election. I could be wrong. You tell me. Yeah, it was June. I think it was June 8th. So I think that was the day before. So you've got somebody, like you say, contractually speaking, in an identical situation to Gary Lineker. He doesn't work for the politics or current affairs team. He's self-employed, right? So he's not got a you know company pension, et cetera, et cetera. It's a different relationship. It's identical. And he's saying, do not vote for the leader of the opposition and the Labour Party the day before a general election. Yeah, that is perfectly fine. That's hunky-dory. And yet Gary Lineker commenting 
on a piece of legislation which he doesn't even you know mention the political party uh it is apparently unacceptable this is brazen okay this is brazen we've seen the government really riding roughshod over media freedoms in this country many many times you don't have to agree by the way with what gary lineker said or think it's particularly helpful this is clearly treating him in a very different way to how it treats its other employees purely because he attacked the government on a piece of policy. He's been treated in a very specific, unique way. Now, one of the things Brits claim to really love and stand up for, including the Tories, is equality under the law. And it doesn't matter who you are, you're treated just the same as everyone else. Well, this is quite clearly not the case now at the BBC. This, I think, because of the scale of Lineker's persona, you know, he's the, he is the third leading scorer of all time for the England national team. He played for Barcelona. He was one of the great footballers of the mid to late 1980s, early 1990s, one of the great footballers in the history of this country, um, being targeted by the public service broadcaster, I'd call it a state broadcaster, for views which people get away with when they're not criticizing the government. Extraordinary. I think this may be one of the biggest controversies of the BBC in our lifetime. I think, th I think this could end up being extraordinarily toxic for the BBC and for the government. Early days, but this is indefensible. I don't think we've yet got an account of exactly what happened, right? Because we, we've got this quote in The Sun yesterday, um, and I saw there were other people reporting it, but they, do, they, they tended to sort of say a source that spoke to The Sun. So it seems like there, there wasn't an official announcement from the BBC that he'd get to keep hosting Match of the Day, and this was all basically over. All right. Um, so, so they had that source. And then today we've got the complete opposite piece of news, which is that, no, he's going to have to step back from match of the day. They've made it clear, by the way, that this is, this is not an agreement that the BBC and Gary Lineker have come to. They've said, you can't host match of the day until we come to a, an agreement about your social media use, right? So this wasn't a, a mutual thing. How do you think they got from briefing the sun that everything was fine to 24 hours later saying you can't host you know, our most popular show anymore? Well, I don't know legally how they can. He has a contract with them. He's not breached it. And they're now saying that he can't present the show. Presumably, he'll still be paid. He just won't, won't do the work. I mean, I don't know when his contract expires, Michael, but it'd be pretty extraordinary if the BBC, with public money, is giving Lineker huge sums. He is one of the highest, I think the highest paid presenter on BBC television. And he's actually not fronting the, pro the, the product, which is Match Today. That would be extraordinary. And the idea that he has brought the BBC into disrepute would look ridiculous by comparison. This is, this is money coming from people across the country, people on low middle incomes, paying for this guy to do nothing. And that's because the BBC don't want him to do anything, even though he hasn't breached his contract. It is indefensible. And it comes, you know, at a time when the leadership of the BBC are conservative supporters. The chairman of the BBC is a, is a former Tory donor. Um, it's almost like they're trying their best to discredit the BBC and the idea of public service broadcast. Uh, I, I, I don't really see how they, how they get out of this and keeping their noses clean because obviously Lineker's confidence, when you saw that clip at the top of this, when the, there was the ridiculous piranha-like behavior from broadcast doorstepping Gary Lineker outside his home early one morning this week, he seemed relatively confident, smiling. I think probably because his contract says what he's done is perfectly acceptable. So, look, the Tories love to talk about the rule of law and contracts and, uh, you know, respecting the rights of others. This defies every single thing they claim to stand up for. Utterly remarkable. The idea that the license fee pair could be paying 
this chap over the next couple of years, millions of pounds to not host matches today. Who signed that off? Because they certainly shouldn't be leading an organisation like the BBC. Well, the person leading an organisation like the BBC is Tim Davey, who is a former Conservative Party candidate, right? So th this isn't subtle. The Director General, so that's the person who's like the CEO, does the day-to-day -day management of the BBC, is a former Conservative candidate. The Chair, so that's the person who sort of oversees overall governance of the organisation, is a Conservative donor who helped arrange a loan for the, for, well, for, the for, for the former Prime Minister, for Boris Johnson. And when you've got contributors who tweet nasty things about the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn, it's fine. And when you've got contributors who tweet criticisms of Tory party policy, they get withdrawn, right? Um, Aaron, because you know more about this than me, if Ian Wright is not hosting Match of the Day tomorrow, I think that the lineup is normally Gary Lineker, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, am I correct? So if Ian Wright and Gary Lineker are, are not participating, what's going to happen? Is it, is it possible that there'll just be a strike and no one, everyone will refuse to host Match of the Day in solidarity with Gary Lineker? You're going to look a bit scabby if you sort of stand forward and host it now, aren't you? Well, you've, you've used precisely the right word there, Michael. Look, these are people, whether it's Gary Lineker, Ian Wright, uh, Alan Shearer, Danny Murphy, Jermaine Genas, the, the point of football pundits is obviously they're ex-pros. It's not just men, of course, over time it's improved. It's also uh, women footballers, both past and present, but the, the sort of back, that's, I've just said to you, the backbone of the match of the day operation. I find it very hard to believe that any ex-pro will present that show, given what they've done to Lineker. I find it very hard to believe with that Shearer, Genus, Danny Murphy, because people don't really talk about this very often, but footballers in this country have a, a union called the PFA. And it's actually quite a strong union. It, it, it's one of the industries which actually has surprisingly solidaristic. We don't really talk about it very often. Uh, and so there is a culture, actually, of, of footballers understanding their rights as workers, which perhaps might surprise some people. So Lineker being treated like this, I think, will not sit easily with ex-pros, who also, it's important to say, are also his friends. People like Alan Shearer, Ian Wright, they are friends and colleagues, and they've worked together for a decade plus. So I have no idea who they're going to get to host the show, Michael. Maybe they're going to bring back, you know, uh, St. Greavesy or Des Lynham. <laughs> It's a really, really tough one. Maybe they'll get somebody from Match Today too. Um, Mark Pugach. I don't know. Maybe they might bring back Adrian Childs because I can't see any ex-pros doing it. Frankly, I think they're going to struggle. I think they're going to struggle to get a host um, and, a, and a full team ready for the Saturday show because it's tomorrow. They have really put themselves in a very tricky situation. We are going to come back to this BBC issue because we are going to talk about David Attenborough um, later on in the show, also a victim of cancel culture at the BBC. Um, we are going to cover a few more stories first, though. Today, Rishi Sunak, along with a number of his cabinet colleagues, travelled to Paris for an Anglo-French summit. It's the first time they've done so in five years. And the big news was a £500 million deal to try and stop channel crossings. Rishi Sunak announced the deal in a joint press conference with Macron. Emmanuel and I share the same belief. Criminal gangs should not get to decide who comes to our countries. Within weeks of my coming into office, we agreed our largest ever small boats deal. And today we've taken our cooperation to an unprecedented level to tackle this shared challenge. We're announcing a new detention center in Northern France, a new command center bringing our enforcement teams together in one place for the first time and an extra 500 new officers patrolling French beaches, all underpinned by more drones and other surveillance technologies that will help ramp up the interception rate. 
And the legislation the UK has introduced this week supports this because it's designed to break the business model of the criminal gangs and remove the pull factors, bringing them to the Channel Coast. Now, we will always comply with our international treaty obligations, but I am convinced that within them that we can do what is necessary to solve this shared problem and stop the boats. The deal doesn't include any deal or agreement to return migrants crossing the Channel back to France, um, which led to this question from the BBC's Chris Mason. The same question to you both, if I may. Do you think you'll ever be able to arrange a deal where migrants leaving France for the UK are returned to France? Thank you. Yeah, I'll take that. Thanks, uh, Chris. I think what you've seen today is an unprecedented level of cooperation on tackling this shared challenge, because that's what it is. It's a shared challenge. It's not just the UK that's grappling with illegal migration. It's not just France. It's countries across Europe. And now our partnership is incredibly strong. I think the work that our two Home Secretaries, Suella and Gerard, have done over the past few months uh, has been unlike anything that anyone's ever seen. And you're seeing the fruits of that cooperation today with a new agreement, new investment, uh, and that will help both of us stop the cycle of these criminal gangs. Um, and going forward, there will be more that we can do. We started that last November. We've built on it today. And we'll continue cooperating, as, as the President said, and he'll probably talk about, the Calais Group is another important forum for these conversations to happen with other Northern European countries. And I'm sure Emmanuel probably will talk a little bit about the EPC. And as we think about future cooperation between the UK and other countries in Europe, what the president has set up as a new forum for that engagement to happen and illegal migration, I'm certain will be one of the topics that we will discuss when we come to that meeting that we'll be pleased to host next year uh, in the UK and obviously is happening this year elsewhere. Yes, thank you for your question. Um, first, I think we focus on what we have to do on the short run to prevent precisely these migrations and to try to dismantle all these, uh, these groups, these networks and these models. And, and I think the level of ambition of this new plan is exactly what we need. This is what we can do on the, at the bilateral level. Second, this is not an agreement between UK and France, but an agreement between UK and the EU because Dublin agreements are no more uh, in a situation to be implemented. So this is something now to be negotiated. Third, as uh, Mr. Prime Minister just further said, uh, we do believe that the right way to approach this migration is a, a broader space. Western Balkans, European Union, and not just France and UK have to work closely together in order precisely to dismantle these groups and to be more efficient regarding this phenomenon. And this is why it's part of the key topics we have to discuss in the framework of this uh, European political community. The Dublin agreement referred to by Macron there is a deal that sort of applies within the European Union. That's where any migrant can be deported to the European country where they were first registered. So if someone came to the UK and they'd already been sort of documented in Greece, then the UK could send them to Greece via the Dublin agreement. Obviously, the UK used to be part of that agreement. It's not anymore. And Macron was clear that if there were ever to be a returns agreement between France and the UK, that would have to be part of a multilateral deal with the UK and the rest of the EU. He seems to be trying to get going something um, called the European political community and um, sort of bring Britain back into these discussions. Um, Aaron, I want to talk to you about the deal that was agreed today. So the UK will be paying France around half 
a billion pounds to increase patrols on its border and to set up a new detention centre in the north of France. So what's your response to that? It speaks to, I think, the Hail Mary with regards to Rishi Sunak's premiership. And let's be honest, the Tories' best hope really is a hung parliament in 2024, 2025. And that's going to revolve around the core issue of migration. Now, we've seen a whole hullabaloo around that. Gary Lineker's story, obviously, was top of the show. Many people will agree with him, but the polling indicates that actually a big chunk of the public likes what is happening. I don't agree with it in the slightest, obviously. And particularly Tory votes in 2019, like um, the steps now being taken by the government on migration. What Sunak is doing differently on this issue compared to somebody like Boris Johnson with Brexit is he is treating it like a technocrat. He is not um, defaulting to a belligerent rhetoric against other European Union leaders like Liz Trusted, for instance. And I think this poses a real problem for people who have been critical of right populists in the last several years, but haven't really taken to task the policies that these people actually advance and their core ideas. So yes, Sunak looks like a centrist, a grown-up. Yes, he is a technocrat. He knows how to solve problems. Yes, he's happy to engage in, in the words of Macron, bilateral uh, bilateral settlements. Yes, he's very happy to be part of uh, a coordination with other national leaders. No, rhetorically, and in terms of how he presents, he's not a little Englander. This is the country's first South Asian prime minister uh, on, uh, on a stage there with the French prime minister looking very at ease. But fundamentally, Michael, when you actually look at the, the nuts and bolts of his policy here, it's well to the right of people like Theresa May or David Cameron or Boris Johnson. So I think that's a really, really difficult challenge for people, particularly on the liberal left, who are obsessed with the optics. And the optics of Rishi Sunak are actually quite good. Like I say, he's BAME. He's very willing to work with people. He wants to solve problems. Look at what he's done with regards to Northern Ireland quite quickly with the, with the so-called uh, Windsor arrangements. Let's see whether or not those are passed into law. And it looks like he's doing something quite similar here on migration. So I would really say to people who care so much about the optics, with Sunak, that stuff is less and less relevant. This legislation is not good. It's counterproductive because it's immoral. It doesn't solve the problems necessarily. I mean, that's less the case with this, but the stuff we saw at the stuff we saw rather at the top of the week, uh, and it's regressive. It doesn't present a positive face for Britain to the rest of the world. Uh, it's not in our country's interest to be perceived as this hostile, insulated country. Those where you attack the man. So. I think it's going to be an interesting couple of months, Michael, because there are people in this country in the media who've made a career in the last five years to not discern right populism from the contents of what it actually wants. They just, they just hit the optics. They just hit what they don't like um, about how it looks. And Suna looks fine, right? Fame guy, well-educated, well-spoken, very calm, doesn't hit out at other foreign leaders. But the substance of what he's introducing as legislation is very, very regressive. Far worse than May, far worse than Johnson. That's a challenge to the liberal media. I think there's an even deeper question sort of along those lines when it comes to policy. Because if you look at the sort of the two policies announced this week, so you've got one which was sort of the start of the week, which was to say anyone who comes across the channel automatically has no right to apply for asylum. And that caused genuine and outrage, and I think it should have done, because it breached 
the refugee convention and sort of the traditions we have of 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 how asylum should work what he has announced today is actually how asylum policy actually works and always does but in a way it's equally brutal so he is doing what is the the classic move which the eu did with regards turkey and libya where it's to say look it's too politically awkward if these people arrive here so we're going to give you loads of money and you can sort out the problem. So the EU gave Libya loads of money, gave Turkey loads of money, and they said, can you round up the people so we don't have to, because it's awkward when we do it. It's kind of similar. Sunak is saying, France, we'll give you half a billion pounds. Can you round up these people because we we don't want to, it's too awkward, right? And this is sort of the most standard policy when it comes to immigration, which is sort of implemented by conservatives and by liberals. So America has a very similar deal with Mexico. They sort of say, it's very awkward when these people cross the border. So we're going to give you shed loads of money and can you deal with it? And if the human rights abuses are committed over there, then that's fine. And I mean, obviously France is a very similar country to, to Britain when it comes to sort of freedom of press and sort of the level of scrutiny because they're both sort of highly developed Western democracies. But if you're looking at say Libya, especially is where I sort of have read most about the human rights abuses that go on there but they don't really get talked about so much because they're over there but they're actively being you know funded by italy and germany and all these european countries that like to think of themselves as liberal but they say oh no it's over there we're still complying with the refugee convention because these people never got here so this idea of stopping people before they get to you before they're your problem and actually handsomely funding their rounding up before they get to your borders is is just classic Western policy when it comes to migration. It's it, it's very normal, but it's difficult to see how it's not as brutal as, you know, what the horrific policies that Suella Braverman announced at the beginning of this week. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely not sure about this one. Aaron, what do you what do you think? No, I think you've made a very astute point there, Michael. Important to say as well, huge sums of money. You know, the Rwanda, uh, the Rwanda solution is still there, right? So this whole thing of People coming over via boats seeking to claim asylum will be immediately criminalized and they will be deported to a quote-unquote safe country as quickly as possible. That that includes Rwanda. That is an incredibly expensive undertaking, as is this. And and you do wonder, Michael, always with new government initiatives, with new infrastructure, with um, new agreements, costs always mushroom. And and I wonder, clearly the government is saying to itself... not justifiably, explicably, we have to really get on top of this because we need to distinguish ourselves now from from the Reform Party. I think any way, any route, any road for the Conservatives to even be remotely competitive in the 2024 general election means they have to squeeze down that vote, which is presently going to reform as much as possible. The first thing they're going to have to do, right? They're going to need to take four, four, five, six points away from reform. That's why they're doing this policy. That's that's their that's their thinking on this. Now, fine, that's the political calculation. But actually, what's interesting is nobody's talking about the economics of it all, right? So if we end up with all of these new uh, all of these new initiatives, and we still get boat crossings, which I think we inevitably will. I think everybody agrees on that. I think that's the Achilles heel with Sunak, right? Even if boat crossings are a quarter of what they are now by say 2024, they're still happening. And you're saying that you're going to end them, but you aren't going to end them because it's virtually impossible to end them and you're spending billions of pounds on top of it, and there are recordings of your own Home Secretary saying we're going to sort it, just as there are of David Cameron saying we're going to reduce immigration in this country to the tens of thousands. It is frightening, Michael, because you already have a very reactionary Conservative Party adopting a highly regressive uh, set of 
solutions with regards to undocumented migration. And even that won't be enough. Even that creates a political space to its right. Like I say, particularly if this costs billions and billions and billions, and yet people are still coming over. And by the way, that's the most likely outcome. So it is, Michael, it's, it is frightening. It is frightening. And I think by 2024, 2025, the left needs to be aware that this issue will be bigger than ever. And that can still be the case if there's a Labour government, which at the moment seems to be most likely. But the Conservatives and the right will go on undocumented migration like nothing else. Why? Because they have nothing else. They can't defend their record on public services. They can't do it on jobs. They can't do it on housing. So they're going to have to really go to town on this. And I think ultimately it might be their undoing because they can't achieve the things they're claiming ultimately. And eventually the costs come back to bite you on the ass. I've got an important update on the Gary Lineker story because this is a developing story. I've got um, my, my Guardian live feed open. 11 minutes ago, former Lib Dem leader Tim Farron has said he will stand back from watching Match of the Day in solidarity with Gary Lineker. He tweeted, I will be stepping back from watching the programme until the BBC grows a backbone. Still, I'm sure we can count on the Free Speech Union to stand up against this hysterical act of cancellation. So the sort of dig um, at the Free Speech Union. Um, Aaron, Tim Farron standing back from watching Match of the Day. Do you think this is going to add to the shitstorm that the BBC have found itself in? The man's an idiot. <laughs> the man's an idiot. You've got a really serious issue and you've got professionals like Ian Wright, Gary Lineker, risking a lot of money, risking their professional representation, risking their professional reputations rather in, in sports broadcasting to make a political point. And then you have a politician making a fucking joke of it. The man's ridiculous. Our next story, a genuinely very important one, who did Nord Stream on a previous show. We spoke about a report by investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch alleging that the Nord Stream pipelines had been sabotaged by the United States. Hirsch reported this, how America took out the Nord Stream pipeline. The New York Times called it a mystery, but the United States executed a covert sea operation that was kept secret until now. Um, so in that piece, Hirsch reported that the pipeline, which connects Russian gas fields to German consumers, was blown up by American spies under the orders of Joe Biden. Predictably, the claim was vociferously denied by the White House. And now a new theory has emerged. So the New York Times has now reported this. Intelligence suggests pro-Ukrainian groups sabotaged pipelines, US officials say. New intelligence reporting amounts to the first significant known lead, so obviously Seymour Hersh's wasn't a significant known lead, about who was responsible for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines that carried natural gas from Russia to Europe. And in that piece, they write this, US officials said there was much they did not know about the perpetrators and their affiliations. The review of newly collected intelligence suggests they were opponents of Vladimir Putin of Russia, but does not specify the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. US officials declined to disclose the nature of the intelligence, how it was obtained, or any details of the strength of the evidence it contains. They have said that there are no firm conclusions about it, leaving open the possibility that the operation might have been conducted off the books by a proxy force with connections to the Ukrainian government or its security services. That account has now also um, got backing in the German press. So on the same day as that NYT splash, the German newspaper Zeit published this Nord Stream investigations traces lead to Ukraine. Investigators have identified the boat from which the Nord Stream attacks were carried out. Apparently, it was rented by a company owned by Ukrainians. 
And in their report, they write this, according to the investigation, which was by the German security services, the secret operation at sea was carried out by a team of six people. It is said to have been five men and one woman. Accordingly, the group consisted of a captain, two divers, two diving assistants, and a doctor who were said to have transported the explosives to the crime scenes and placed them there. The nationality of the perpetrators is apparently unclear. The assassins used professionally forged passports, which are said to have been used, among other things, to rent the boat. According to the investigation, the command set sail from Rostock on September the 6th, 2022. The equipment for the secret operation was previously transported to the port in a delivery truck, it said. According to the research, the investigators subsequently managed to locate the boat again the following day in Wieck and later on the Danish island of Christianso, northeast of Bornholm. The yacht was then returned to the owner in an uncleaned condition. According to research, investigators found traces of explosives on the table in the cabin. We now have two theories. We've got Seymour Hersh's theory, where he says that this was the US government sort of using uh, divers from their security services. Now, I'm according to this German newspaper and the New York Times, well, according to the German newspaper, it's got more detail. So they say, uh, you've got six individuals not aligned to a state, rented out a yacht and blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. They then returned the rented yacht without cleaning it. Aaron, which do you find more plausible? Can you make heads or tails of this? This new theory could only be concocted by a Hollywood scriptwriter, Michael. For our audience, Nord Stream 2 pipelines are about 80 to 100 meters deep. It is incredibly hard for any diver to get that deep. 100 meters deep. These are pipelines which are made out of steel encased in concrete. Now, the idea that six people rented a yacht and blew up a multi-billion dollar piece of infrastructure, which is this hard to damage, I find incredibly hard to believe. They would have to be the Avengers. It would have to be Captain America. It would have to be somebody from a Marvel comic. But then again, that is the level of m much of the legacy media when it covers stories like this. So perhaps they think those are the persons guilty. Far more likely, as you insinuated when you asked the question there, Michael, a loaded question, but good for you, uh, far more likely as a state actor. Clearly, clearly. Even then, it's a very hard thing to do, by the way. So the idea that they rented a boat and then, uh, no, no. Possible, right? Possible. Highly implausible. And the idea that the same people who said Seymour Hersh's conspiracy theory are complete nonsense, he needs multiple sources, yada, yada, yada. and they go, oh yeah, no, it's true, yeah, six people could have hired a boat, they could have blown it up, no, no. They're incredibly credulous on this, but then they're like this, you know, the uber-skeptic when it comes to Seymour Hersh. Why? I said this on a show, I think last week, Michael. We have a media and a media culture in the Anglophone world where if I like you, if you're one of the goodies, if I agree with you, I'm incredibly credulous, and if I don't like you and you're one of the baddies, I don't believe a thing you say, People should use their brains. Think clearly on this. Clearly, clearly, this is almost certainly a state actor. This is very much, I think, the media saying, well, some officials have told us, you know, the officials wouldn't tell us how they, why they think this. They wouldn't even tell us they're particularly sure. They wouldn't tell us who did it. Um, but this is what officials now say. I mean, that's essentially what these stories amount to. I, I suppose potentially the, um, like the American Secret Services, et cetera, they're all a bit, uh, like I said, maybe a bit hubristic because, you know, obviously after Iraq and everything, no one had any trust for them whatsoever. If you wrote a story which just said US officials say this after it was, you know, it was, it was very apparent that they've been lying to everyone for a very long period of time. You know, if, if you read that story, everyone would be like, this is ridiculous. But because they got lots of the intelligence right when it came to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think maybe journalists are a bit less 
embarrassed about just writing, well, an official told me this. I have no other evidence, but an official told me this. I listened to the New York Times podcast about this. They didn't express any doubt. They say it's sort of like, oh, and now um, we've looked at the the lines of information and this is what we think. So like, it was just a guy from the CIA that told you that, right? They haven't sort of demonstrated that they've done any original research into this. Do you think that's what's going on here, Aaron? Do you think sort of like, because the, the American Secret Service is quite publicly were right when it came to the timing of the Russian invasion. They now just feel that they can give out any stories because they sort of gained some some credibility from from that moment in time. Who knows? Look, Michael, heaven forbid it's the it's the job of journalists and the media to actually inform their audience. Heaven forbid they aren't just the interlocutors between press releases from state agencies and the recipients of that information, i.e. the general public. Heaven forbid. No, their job is to hold some people to account and give correct information to the ordinary man and woman on the street. Look, like I said, it's plausible. It's a plausible hypothesis. It's like we talked about the lab leak last week. Plausible hypothesis. You'd need quite robust proof for something this technically difficult, right? Like I say, most of the pipeline, 80 to 100 meters deep, uh, and it's encased in concrete, and these are steel pipelines. I mean, they're not built to be fragile, right? It is built to be able to withstand tremendous natural and also unnatural forces. Uh, so the idea that, oh, yeah, no, actually, it was just a private group that went and did this. Okay. Uh, that, that's kind of hard to swallow. Uh, but but it's it's plausible. So like I say, the media should be scrutinizing it, not, not swallowing it wholesale. I have to say, Michael, this is one of the strangest stories in recent years. You have a vital piece of energy infrastructure in Europe, which is blown up, right? It has in the long term undermined the energy security of Germany. Of course it has. Of course it has. It's obvious. Um, and we don't know who did it. And what's strangest of all is that, you know, I saw somebody tweet about it using the word the Euro cucks running the various countries of Europe. It's kind of true, right? If you're a German national and energy is really expensive, by the way, I think they should wean themselves off, uh, off Russian energy. I think that's in their strategic interest. I think in the long term, it's very good for decarbonization. But in the here and now, you have this massive piece of infrastructure just blown up willy-nilly, and you've got politicians in Germany and in, in France and Spain and Italy. Nobody's talking about it. Isn't it a bit weird? I mean, if, if, if tomorrow, you know, somebody blew up Crossrail, which has cost this country billions of pounds to build, and we say, oh, you know, it's, we think it might be these guys, oh, it might be these guys, oh, who knows? Really, really strange. Really, really strange. And for me, it... it, it this story demonstrates the extent now to which Europe, by which I mean the European Union, but also the UK too, is really now a, it's an extension of the United States. It does not have an independent security, energy, geopolitical, even technology policy. There is a chip manufacturer in the Netherlands. It's one of the world's few chip manufacturers outside the United States capable of building, of manufacturing, cutting edge microprocessing technology. There are other plants in Taiwan and, and, and Japan. Now, this manufacturer of, of the tools that build the chips, not the chips themselves, has decided to join in with regards to US sanctions on China. So China can't develop the microprocessors it needs to build the AI applications, which are clearly going to be the next frontier of technological conflict between the US and China. Why have they done that? And now you can agree with, you, you can agree with them doing it. Why have they done that? Why now? Because the US asked them to. A Dutch company, which exports a technology, has just decided to cut off selling that technology to its number one client, its number one growth market, because the US asked it to. And by the way, Bill Gates, 
who was speaking to Gideon Rachman at the FT. He thinks this is stupid anyway. It's pointless. He thinks the Chinese will develop their own microprocessing technologies and, 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 and domestic supply chains in any case. And in the meantime, you're threatening the bottom line of a major European technology company. The Dutch government went, yep, fine. Hey, you might want to ask the company, by the way. You've probably laid off a lot of their workers. Like I say, Europe does not now have an independent political, economic, geopolitical existence of the United States. Energy too, because of course we're so dependent, or, or mainland Europe is so dependent on imports of, um, of US uh, liquid natural gas, given it no longer is importing much of it from Russia. Extraordinary. I remember the turn of the 21st century, Michael, you had writers out there, think tankers, people like Mark Leonard, who said that you know, the EU is the rising superpower of the 21st century. People talk about the US, they talk about China, but actually it's Europe. They couldn't have been more wrong. My last update on the Gary Lineker story was a bit of a joke. Tim Farron has stepped back from watching it. I've got some real news for you now. Alan Shearer has informed the BBC that he won't be appearing on Match of the Day tomorrow night. So that's um, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer. So the, the, the three main hosts of that show, Gary Lineker, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, none of them will be hosting Match of the Day tomorrow. So that does put the BBC in a very difficult situation. On that theme, Gary Lineker is not the only victim of cancel culture at the BBC. David Attenborough has now joined the club. The news comes in an exclusive from The Guardian who say the BBC will not broadcast an episode of his new series over fear of a right-wing backlash. The episode, however, will feature on iPlayer. The apparently controversial episode is part of a new David Attenborough series on nature in the British Isles. The Guardian write this. It is understood to be a stark look at the losses of nature in the UK and what has caused the declines. It is also understood to include some examples of rewilding, a concept that has been controversial in some right-wing circles. Senior sources at the BBC told The Guardian that the decision was made to fend off potential critique from the political right. This week, The Telegraph newspaper attacked the BBC for creating the series and for taking funding from two charities previously criticised for their political lobbying, the WWF, the World Wildlife Federation, not the World Wrestling Federation, and the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. One source at the broadcaster who asked not to be named said lobbying groups that are desperately hanging on to their dinosaurian ways, such as the farming and game industry, would kick off if the show had too political a message. So Aaron, rewilding is now too divisive a subject for the BBC, or at least for their, you know, their linear channels. So it's, it's not going to be broadcast on BBC One and BBC Two, but it's, 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 it's neutral enough for iPlayer. What's, what's going on here? This is ridiculous. There's a multi-billion pound news organisation which also creates documentaries, and it can't talk about the fundamental issues of the 21st century because it's quote-unquote political. But here's the problem, Michael. You can say that, and then, of course, some Tories will say, yeah, well, you're quite right, we need to get rid of the BBC. And I think that's the long game here. And it's terrible to watch in real time because I, I frankly don't think it has a future. Um, uh, you have to look at people like Tim Davey, uh, Richard Sharp, who's the, the, the Director General and the Chair of the BBC, you, you, you said earlier in the show. One's a former Conservative Party councillor. One is somebody who is a former party donor and very close you know, uh, to, to a number of leading Tories, including Boris Johnson. You have to look at this now, I think, as a form of cancer. Uh, they're inside the organization, and I think they're only willing to take it in one direction, which is away from serious coverage of the issues that matter in our lifetimes. Why? Because that's politically inconvenient. Well, then you aren't going to have a very, very good broadcast at the end of it, are you? 
So if the BBC wants to make cutting edge documentaries, if it wants to have good current affairs journalism, I mean, what next, Michael, right? Kids shows? What next? Drama shows? If there's a, if there's a TV drama and somebody criticizes the conservatives, uh, is that gonna get the ax? This is a real attack on freedom of political expression in this country right now. Massive attack. And, and we're not going overboard here saying, oh, well, you know, look, the BBC should be impartial and they, they shouldn't be. Look, we have the climate crisis. The planet is one degree at least warmer than it was at the end of the 19th century. We're looking, according to everybody with more than two brain cells, at climate warming this century of, of, of two degrees or more. Clearly, if you're talking about uh, wild habitats, and potential climate restoration in this country and trying to mitigate climate change, you will talk about rewilding. You just will. The idea that can't go out on linear TV, wow. Wow. We're in a very strange place right now as a country. It just feels like all the talent's going to leave the BBC because if you can't say anything now, if, 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 if on a nature program you can't talk about rewilding, like where, where are we? It's also like a real... It's a real shame because, I mean, the, the BBC does, you know, there are moments when it does take on a bit more of a campaigning role. And it's for these issues that are supposed to be so broad and, you know, necessary that they do it. You know, so, so on COVID, for example, I don't, you know, I, I think the BBC were, were fairly reasonable on that. You know, lots of public information, et cetera. They have sort of suggested at times that they would be like that with climate. But it seems that now even climate change and the environment is too controversial for the BBC, which is... A shame again, because you've got someone like David Attenborough, who is a sort of national treasure, speaks very effectively to especially older people, some of the people who can be a bit harder to reach when it comes to these climate issues. He wants to take upon it himself to communicate to this older generation that climate change really, really matters. And the BBC is saying, oh, no, there might be some nutty right wing Tory MPs who will get annoyed at us with that. So we're going to put it on iPlayer. I mean, that also the age thing seems significant to me here, because I think who watches linear TV? So linear TV, they, you know, they put it out, you watch it at the same time. So the, the scheduled, the, the TV schedule, you watch it at 9 p.m. because it's on at 9 p.m. It seems that the only people who probably really do that, I suppose, are an older generation. So they're the people who aren't going to watch this show about rewilding, which is probably one of the most effective ways of communicating the importance of environmental protection to, to older people. Seems a shame to me. Seems pathetic to me, but we have become used to that from the BBC, especially this week. Final story. We've talked a lot this week about the Tories' cynical and inhumane response to asylum seekers. We've spoken less about Labour, but their position is also pretty lacklustre, and it was called out this week on Question Time. Let's start with the Labour contribution. This is Shadow Policing Minister Sarah Jones. We need to do something about small boats, absolutely. Um, but let's be clear um, that the problem is that the Home Office has been ground down over many years and is not processing the claims that are coming forward. 1% of Albanians who uh, came last year have seen decisions. We have such a huge backlog that we have thousands of people in hotels costing millions of pounds every day. But is that now, your primary objection? What, or is your, no, are you not objecting to the idea that, that people who come over on small boats will be detained for 28 days and then sent either back to where they came from or to somewhere like Rwanda? Are so you happy with that? What we are saying and what we believe is that there are things you can do to fix this problem, to stop people coming on the small boats. But so do you right? object to that part of the policy? I'm just trying to be clear. We, uh, we will be voting against this 
bill as we voted against the bill last year that said it would do exactly the same thing and has utterly failed. There was a piece of legislation last year, the Nationalities and Borders Bill, where they said exactly the same thing would happen and it didn't. And actually there are thousands of people who are just sitting with no decision, not being sent back, nothing being done. Now look, what we need to do is we need to tackle uh, the gangs. Uh, this is a new problem that has emerged over the last four years. We have these massive organised crime gangs that are dealing in smuggling one day and drugs the next. Now, we have said we need to set up a, a, a cross-country border force that works with other countries to get the people that are leading we, this. We already have um, that. So no, you don't the already crime have, agency. no, you don't already have that. We the do. National Crime Agency, I know well, I've been in and spoken to them. It is not the scale that we need to be looking at. And the conversations you're having with the French about more border uh, police at the, uh, at the border on the coast is like if you're trying to tackle county lines. It's like putting the police on the train and hanging around and waiting to see if you see anyone who's, who's, who's bringing drugs on the train. You need to tackle the problem at source we're, we're, and we're, Labour we're, we're would doing, do that. We doing, need to stop the boots, things, but we so. need to do it in a way that works. This bill won't work. After listening to that contribution, journalist and writer Yasmin Alibi-Brown made this intervention. Could I please yes. speak? Because I am <laughs> astonished that neither of the political representatives have mentioned the human beings, and I'm very pleased somebody did that. These are human beings. Okay. Number one. Number two. Number two. I promised myself I wouldn't get overexcited, but really this has left me choking. You are trashing, between you, Labour and, and uh, the Tories, are trashing the legacy of the man this country holds to be their greatest hero. The two treaties, the agreements that were signed in 48, 1948 and 1951 protected the rights of refugees and that was Winston Churchill. So you're talking about the European Convention on Human yeah. Rights and, and the, the UN Refugee, Refugee Convention. And in those uh, conventions, sorry, you've all had your time. You're going to yes, get... this is your moment. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the, those agreements, and Suella is, knows this to be what she's saying is untrue, it gives every refugee or asylum seeker the right to go to whichever country they choose, the first, second, or third. So it's the uh, first uh, wait, wait, no, can you? No, no. I didn't, no, I didn't inter interrupt you, okay? You've got to let me speak. Um, and that they can come undocumented because back then, way back then, they understood human suffering. They understood that you can't get proper papers and documents and have all that in place. If say you're coming from a country like Iran today or a, a, a woman in Afghanistan and to think that that legacy is being trashed by what are really teddy boy Tories and also the Labour Party <laughs> cowardly Labour Party. Absolutely makes me ashamed, really. Aaron, what do you think about Labour's sort of refusal to make the moral argument over asylum seekers? I mean, I, I suppose you could say but maybe, maybe they don't believe the moral argument that we should be more welcoming to asylum seekers. I think probably more likely they think the Tories want a fight about asylum seekers, so we're going to do everything in our power to try and avoid it. But it does, I think, you know, th there are a couple of dangers. One, it makes them look shifty when they're being asked, but, you know, do you, do you have a problem with breaking the refugee convention in and of itself? And they refuse to answer. Also, it does risk 
you know, letting the the public discourse on asylum seekers shift dramatically to the right because there's nothing to pull it in the other direction. I mean, what's your what's your take? Well, Amber Lavanar Sevenanden had a great quote on this in the 1960s. I'm going to read it out to you. What Enoch Powell says today, the Tories say tomorrow, and Labour legislates on the day after. And that's literally playing out in real time, Michael, on BBC Question Time last night. We have had the weather made on issues of refugees and asylum in this country. It's been made by the extreme right, by people like UKIP, who, who never won uh, Westminster seats. They had MPs, but they never won Westminster seats. And the likes of the BNP, who, of course, won two MEPs in the 2009 European elections, but again, never went to Westminster. They have set the tone and tenor of this debate for more than a decade. The Tories have moved policy right, right, right. And if we get a Labour government after 2024, it would be a fool not to think that they will be introducing, as Sarah Jones was kind enough to admit on live television, many of the things that the Tories are now talking about. I think the pragmatic centrist position, I'm not a centrist, I'm on the left, a pragmatic centrist position is to say, we're going to see massive refugee flows in the course of the 21st century because of things like climate change. We've contributed towards geopolitical instability in North Africa and and the Middle East because of invasions in Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya. We've got sanctions on Iran. There's a civil war in Syria. Clearly, we're going to see large numbers of people flow towards Europe in the coming years and decades. A centrist argument would be to say, we will triple the number of refugees we give asylum to in this country. 150,000, right? So on a per capita basis, we're more or less alongside countries like Germany, Sweden, Austria. That's a centrist argument. And then you might say, but we can't go above that. And we need to have a multilateral uh, agreement across Europe about how to manage this in a coordinated, humane way. That's the centrist liberal argument. It's not, it's not no borders. You still have border force. But in, 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 in sort of speculative abstract terms, that's the centrist argument. But what we have instead, Michael, is a political consensus from both major parties that actually know we shouldn't have any refugees here because that's tacitly what this policy is, right? Well, they have to take safe routes. There are no safe routes. And, uh, and, and we'll make the country an outlier in terms, of, um, in terms of international law. It is extraordinary. And people love to say in this country, we have democracy, you know, if you want to vote for one party. Well, no, we have two parties who represent, what, 80% of the popular vote converging on this issue. And there's, there's very little between them. You know, people that try and defend the Chinese system, which I, I wouldn't do, but they say in China with the Chinese Communist Party, you have one party, but it changes and adapts over time. Whereas in the Western systems with the Democrats and Republicans in the US and Labour and Tories in the UK, well, yeah, you have two parties, but actually they're less adaptable to change. They're less likely to try and solve problems. And over the last 30, 40 years, my God, that's actually a pretty robust argument. But when you see an issue like this, you're seeing it play out in real time. So it is frightening. I think it's also entirely predictable. I, I think what frustrates me most in all this, Michael, is to go back to who we led this show on, Gary Lineker, clearly a very principled man. He's clearly willing to lose his job over a point of principle. Good for him. We need more people like that in public life. Yet when there was a leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, who put the rights of refugees front and center, so much so that when he was declared leader of the Labour Party in September 2015, what was the first thing he did? He went on a protest defending the rights of refugees. Somebody like Gary Lineker said, bin Corbyn, 
well, what do you think the alternative was, Gary? And I say this with the best intentions. Like I say, clearly a very honorable, principled man. But what did you think with the what did you think the alternative would be? It was this. And what was the alternative Labour Party? It was this. It's the great moving right show. So the crocodile tears from some people on the liberal left who say, oh my God, but this was all very predictable. Like I say, Sivan Andad said that quote in the 1960s. I'll say it again because it's so powerful and so correct. When Enoch Powell says today, what Enoch Powell says today, the Tories say tomorrow, and Labour legislates on the day after. I think that's what we're looking at after 2024. Now, you might say, Aaron, why are you attacking Labour given the Tories have been the story this week? Well, I'm merely responding to the words of Sarah Jones, who is a Labour MP in Croydon. Powerful words to end the show. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me this evening. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Um, we, I think, I mean, I don't normally watch Match of the Day, but I'm going to be very interested to see what happens tomorrow evening. I think this could be a real crisis for the BBC. They've massively shot themselves in the foot. All they needed to say was just, he's a freelancer, he could say what he wants. But no, they had to get into this completely unprincipled mess. And um, we had three and a half thousand of you tuning into our show tonight. Thank you. And um, if you want to support our work, head to navarromedia.com forward slash support. Come back on Monday night for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.